Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Today, my guest is Timothy Winicky. He's a health practitioner licensed in Denver, Colorado. He was in the Air Force for five years, worked in intelligence, and then five years in advocacy in sexual assault and domestic violence. As a counselor, he works with the military population. Hi, Tim. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Um, one of the goals that I have for this podcast today, Tim, is to talk about some of the myths and misconceptions about this population. So if you don't mind, I would like to mention some and we can start maybe from there. Is that okay? I would love that. Because I know that you experience this with your, with your patients all the time. There is so much that we believe we know about them and it's not true. Absolutely. And when it comes to suicide, the first one that I would like to address is the belief that we have, and this is a mistake that I have made in the past, that the suicide rates with this population is much higher than the general population here in the, U- in the U.S. So could you talk a little bit about that? So it's not so much that the, the suicide rate is explicitly higher. It's just that there's a far thinner line between ideation and attempts, and attempts tend to be lethal. So what we see is we see increases in suicide completion by women. So female service members are a lot more likely to complete suicide than their counterparts, but they follow the national trend for women in attempts. Mm-hmm. Statistically, women are more likely to attempt and not succeed because they're less likely to use lethal means. We see the same kind of trends within um, police and medical personnel. Uh Essentially, the more exposed and educated you are in lethality and violence, the more likely you are to succeed. So it has to do with the method. Yes. Mm -hmm. But even when we look at the numbers in the U.S., at first, we look at the numbers in terms of general population, and we see that the suicide rate is 14 for every 100,000. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the active population, the military active is 24.8. And here, I believe, is where the misconception begins, because you look at it 14 to 24, that's almost double. But actually, when we take into consideration the sex and also the age, it's pretty much the same because for the U.S. population, it would be 22, not 14. Just so. The, the other big one is um, sexual assault within the military is perceived that the um, female members of the military are much more likely than their civilian counterparts to be assaulted, which isn't true. The rates hmm. are almost exactly the same with the college populations. Well, that one I didn't know. Another one, too, is that deployment increases suicide risk. Is that true? Um, Actually, that's counterintuitive. Um, So the Army back in 2013, I think, was the year, their suicide rate doubled in one year. And like any organization that experienced something like that, they got very afraid and immediately launched into trying to figure out what happened. And so they did a postmortem case for everybody they lost. And the expectation was at the time 
that it was going to be primarily people that had been deployed. Um, leading up to 2013, we had a lot of service members that were deployed multiple times for exceedingly long durations, mm -hmm. um, all of which leads to a lot of problems. What they found was the exact opposite. Most of their suicides occurred within the first year or two of service. And the main critical factors on who they lost was whoever was further from white, male, Christian, lower middle class, heterosexual, and cisgendered. So the hmm. more cultural factors that you didn't have in common with the whole, the more at risk you were. So it didn't have to do uh, with the deployment itself? Not at all. Hmm. Not at all. If anything, the deployment seemed to um, be a bracing factor while in service. Now that flips for veterans. It does? So, yeah, so active How duty so? folks, uh, when they are in, deployment tends to mean they're going to be less likely to commit suicide. Um, that tends to be the opposite when they get out. Be um, and for a lot of reasons that we can get into today. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, uh, I have some questions as a counselor too, maybe in a few minutes. But uh, another one that I would like to address is that suicides are mostly related to mental health issues. Yeah, so I think my, my least favorite commercial that continually airs is like the war veteran with the dog in the bedroom screaming and holding a pistol. Um, wow. That's... Uh, and that was one of the awareness campaigns that got put out like three Really? Years I've ago. never seen that one. No. I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe uh, they took it off the air. Yeah, I hope so. Hope so. I mean, yeah. one, of the, one of the things that I'm, I'm sure your listeners um, and th through your podcast have, have found is it's not depression that tends to be the triggering of um, occurrence and sadness for uh, suicide. It tends to be exhaustion. And realistically, almost everybody in America can track back some depression and anxiety. So in a really broad spectrum, we can say it's mental health. But more often than not, it's either due to uh, something that we like to refer to as a moral injury mm -hmm. or uh, simply a lack of purpose. If there's one thing that the military does exceedingly well that you're very difficult to find anywhere else in the, in the world is a sense of purpose um, from the person loading a truck on a base in the United States to a Navy SEAL doing something spectacular um, to take on the enemies of our country. Everything is made to feel as though it has purpose. And uh -huh. the loss of that more than anything is the biggest contributing factor. And that happens when they come back home, I'm sure. Um, specifically when they get out. Uh, uh -huh. And there's a few other things that happens uh, when service members leave the military that's a strain. Mm -hmm. And, and they know this uh, association between suicide and mental health. This has been in the 70s. We started, and I remember the first books that I started reading. The number that we used back then was nine, 90% of, of the suicides are related to mental health issues. But when you look at the numbers now for the general population, that's not even true anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, the, last, the latest numbers we have is for our for 2017. And I believe it, the number is 54% are not related to mental health issues. It's personal crisis. Yeah, and I think that's the distinction between mental health and personal crisis. It makes sense to be in a struggle with oneself. It makes sense to be feeling overwhelmed when you're at a major turning road. That's not, there's nothing wrong with someone for being in that position. That there's not something clinically wrong or miswired in their mind. 
it's usually a matter of a lack of support and a lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have two more. One of them is the military people are prone to violence. That's a strong one, and I, I think we really need to address yeah, this it. This is probably one of the most triggering for the community and one of the most abhorrent. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if anybody of your listeners has ever been exposed to anybody who studies any kind of martial art, for instance, um, martial arts trains you how to be violently capable Right? You're able to defend yourself, you're able to harm others uh, should you choose to do so. But generally, there's also significant training in the responsibility that, that entails. The vast mm -hmm. majority of the military goes overseas to commit violence so that violence doesn't come home. The idea that veterans and military members are going to be more violent at home is antithetical to everything that draws most of us into the service. I think the struggle is, is that most of us are violently capable. So when violence does occur, we're effective with it. And whether that's, you know, in a, in a bar fight in a bad day or, um, you know, defending ourselves from crime or reacting to a perceived threat, it tends to have much like the, the suicidal line, right? Um, mm -hmm. the, the skill makes the, makes the trigger more impactful. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and as you said before, it, it's about protecting the country and also a sense of purpose, right? Yeah, for the vast majority of us. And the thing that a lot of people, I, th I think, don't understand is that there's a, there's a concept um, that was coined uh, by a gentleman in a book called On Killing. And it's, it's an old one, but essentially it's the idea of a trigger puller. Mm -hmm. And that's someone who has it in them to kill. And it's actually something that most of humanity doesn't have in them to do. And they've done all these studies and all this different research on figuring out exactly what that looks like. Uh, and essentially, one of the ways they figured it out was they went around to military units and they would say, oh, who is your, who's your best soldier? And they say, oh, that's, that's Philip over here. He's the guy that takes care of everybody. He's the guy that his uniform's always pressed. He has everything together. And then they're in a combat zone and they're like, oh, so he's the one who, who kills the most of the energy. Oh, no, no, that's not Phil. That's Joe over here. And Joe's our guy that does that. Hmm. So the people that tend to have that instinct stay in the military. The people that want lethal uh, ability, they're not, they're not dumb and they're not necessarily monstrous. So if that's part of them, they're more likely to stay in the military till long term. Um, the folks that are uh, psychotic if they get out of the military, they tend to go and become mercenaries or join the Foreign Legion. Those mm -hmm. folks don't have a lot of interest in coming home. That's interesting. Um, last one is most combat vets develop PTSD. Is that yeah, true? Not at all. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Um, what, we, what I think a lot of people mistake for post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder is it's something that can happen to anybody with enough repeated exposure to trauma. No one can hold on to horrible things indefinitely, um, taking on more and more without having a negative consequence. However, the percentage of folks that come back from combat with post-traumatic stress syndrome are very small. And I'd have to look up the exact numbers. Um, I'll get them for you for the show notes if you like. But most of military members go to combat and that's not where we struggle. In fact, most of us join to be tested in combat. There's poetry and books 
and tribal traditions, cultural traditions dating back as far back as communities have ran at each other with clubs of young men and boys and some women wanting to test their mettle to see if they have what it takes to go into these lethal environments to protect what they love. It can be an empowering experience for many people. That's, I think that's one of the strongest misconceptions that I've heard it so many times. Well, just the idea that being in combat, you will develop at some point PTSD and that's not true. No, and it's not even direct exposure to combat. What we're finding is the, the drone pilots, the, the young airmen that are flying drones and um, making strikes happen, have similar uh, post-traumatic stress reactions to infantry units. More often than not, it's, um, it's the feeling of helplessness or the feeling of um, unethical action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the difficulty there is combat is messy, chaotic, and horrible. So there is no control, yet we're trained to have that and to do our best to create that. And so it's not so much in most experience with my clients and the people I've worked with, it's not as much that they've been around horror, it's that they've been around horror and didn't impact it in a way that they wish they had. Um, I was wondering about the, you know, that suicide is such a stigmatized subject. People. Mm don't want to talk about it. They believe <clears throat> there is a misconception too that if you talk about suicide, you're going to put it in someone's head and uh, that's not true. It's quite the opposite as you know. But I, I was wondering about the impact of this stigma in this population because when we think about the mil- a military man, we think about someone who is strong, who is brave, who is manly. And there is this uh, idea that suicide is a coward act. And it's selfish. So, so I would really, think that the stigma would be even stronger and more pronounced. It depends pronounced. on the age and the population. So one of the reasons why the veterans' numbers are as high as they are is from the Vietnam generation. We mm-hmm. lose more elderly veterans to suicide than almost any other portion of the population because when uh, they get to the point where they don't feel useful or they feel like their condition's draining on their families mm-hmm. or they don't feel like they can impact their world, they choose suicide. Um, and there's, to be honest, in the military community, there's not a lot of stigma around that. Um, if anything, I think a lot of us think of that as an empowering decision, unfortunately. Really? Yeah. Um, chronic disease without proper support, help, and empowerment can lead people to feeling very helpless. Mm-hmm. And more than anything in my experience, feeling helpless and as though you have no efficacy is one of the biggest triggers for suicide in veterans. Mm-hmm. As a counselor, what do you, you, you treat this population? And, and I know that you, they're very close to your heart for obvious reasons, but what usually brings them to therapy, Tim? So I think the hardest thing that impacts almost every veteran I talk to, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about um, a colonel at a very high level in the officer corps or someone who was a junior enlisted person that was injured after two years and got out, When you're in the military, you are filled with some kind of purpose. The military is very good at making people feel like they have purpose. And they also insulate you from major life decisions. Mm -hmm. You don't choose where you go. You don't choose who you spend time with. uh, You don't even generally choose what job you're going to be assigned. Uh, If you're lucky, you get to choose which branch you go into. And then for the entirety of your time in the military, you no longer make choices. Mm -hmm. And so when they get out and they leave the military, 
there's initially this wonderful feeling that I can make choices, that I have efficacy once again. But there's also this terrible fear of not knowing how anymore. So adapting is, is a big thing. Adapting and recognizing that there is choice and that there's no perfect choice. And uh, what about mental illness? What, what do you see in your primarily, office? Is addiction a big thing? And addiction is primarily with uh, alcohol and painkillers, primarily because the military is a large drinking culture. Oh. Um, and up until fairly recently, there wasn't a lot of focus on coping skills and taking care of folks as they come back from traumatic experiences. But drinking to cope was always encouraged. Mm -hmm. uh, additionally, the work hard, play hard mentality is, is big. I always love it when I hear my fellow clinicians that have a nine to five job go, you know, work hard, play hard. We're going to go ahead a happy hour. Uh, for perspective, in the military, work hard, play hard is I was deployed for nine months. I didn't spend any of my pay that entire time. And I mm -hmm. blew it all in a week in Germany on my way home. Like that level of play and that level wow. of excess. Um, the celebration of life, if you will, after going through some, some near death things. Mm -hmm. And so what a lot of military members will do is when they get out at first, they treat it like they're on leave, like they're on vacation. Um, and they'll drink to excess and they'll try to fit back in, in their world where they can. And so that's a very easy pattern to fall into. The other one is that the VA classically over prescribes painkillers. And the military medical apparatus isn't what the civilians is. In a civilian medical lane, it's to make you better. They're trying to make your life better and extend your life. In the military, all medicine is to make you functional to do your job. And that's what the members want. Get me back with my unit. Get me back with my pain people. Mm -hmm. get me they want back to go to back. Yeah. yeah. And so they'll do that with painkillers as opposed to long-term treatment. Even now, with this, even after this opioid thing. The prices um, and everything it's still it, high. It still, it still continues, yeah. Wow. Um, and some of that's also um, just relevant because men tend to struggle more with alcohol. Um, the one population that the military tends to have more of is men. I want to stay in the topic of um, medical resources for this population. Yeah. What happens when it's mental health resources? What do they have available for them? So do they have like support groups or so kind of how does that work? Area. Um, and it depends on their, their military status. So if they were combat deployed, their range of options goes up ex um, astoundingly. If someone you know is struggling and they're a combat veteran, they are exceedingly likely to be able to get resources because not only can they go through the VA, which has its complications and its struggles, which we'll get into in a moment, mm -hmm. they have something called veteran centers, which their sole purpose is for people who get out and have experienced combat or sexual trauma while serving in the military. Mm -hmm. Additionally, there's a lot of nonprofit funding and groups out there supporting military members' mental health. And it's it's easier to find if you're a combat veteran because it's universally kind of accepted within the helping community that these are the people that put everything on the line for us. For folks that weren't combat deployed, their general resource strategy has got to be to go through the VA and the VA is slow. Mm -hmm. so yeah. I have not, heard a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're not in crisis, um, getting an advocate to help you navigate how to get the care you're looking for is going to be incredibly important. 
because mm -hmm. you need somebody that knows the bureaucracy to help you navigate it. The exception mm -hmm. to that is if somebody's in crisis. Uh, the VA has taken in the last five to 10 years significant and accurate criticism about their crisis response um, to include veterans showing up to local VA hospitals and committing suicide out front or in the lobby because they couldn't get the help they needed as a wow. statement. Think of that like the, the monks who wouldn't let themselves on fire in protest. Mm -hmm. um, it, to me, that's, that's what I look at these gentlemen in, and it's sad and it's tragic that we lost them, but they're doing that certainly helped put a light on the, what the VA wasn't doing. So now they've put a lot of money, time, and research into how to have crisis response. Mm -hmm. So the VA crisis line is actually something that I use whenever I have a client that is in crisis. Mm -hmm. It tends to be very responsive. It tends to be really good. <clears throat> um, the main difficulty with a lot of veterans is that they're rural. Rural veterans have the same struggles that most rural communities have and lacking of resources. That's starting to begin to be addressed based on telehealth, being able to do therapy via a Zoom or a Skype interview is something that's starting to take hold, but it's still not systemic yet. And we still don't have a lot of funding to provide telehealth to veterans, mm -hmm. but it's starting. If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or my name, Paula Fontinelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview. Do you think that there is more awareness regarding mental health now within the military population? I think that one of the things that the military did is they started a campaign where they had World War II and Korean vets that were decorated war heroes, people that had done things and had the decorations that military members recognize as someone of respect. And they essentially had these uh, mostly gentlemen tour around the service and tell their story and tell about their struggles and then tell the members to get help. And I think more than anything that has led people to be more likely to seek help. Mm -hmm. They yes. still have a lot of the same struggles that most men do, but even that's starting to go down. Um, generationally, millennials are more likely to go to get, seek therapy than Generation X than baby boomers mm -hmm. and men are less likely to go. But I think the other thing that's to our advantage is the military is such a tight knit community and we tend to stay in touch with those people that we served with. Mm -hmm. All it takes is one of them to get help and they tend to be fairly open with their fellow service members about what that help did for them. Mm -hmm. They, uh, you just mentioned that they tend to be more open. Does that affect you as a clinician? Because you've been in the military, does it make it easier for them to open up? I think it depends on the veteran. Um, the other thing is that we're, I, I think to an extent, I'm not a combat veteran. I was in the Air Force. I did intelligence work. Mm -hmm. So the hardest population to feel like they can relate to somebody is a combat veteran because they have a unique experience that very few other people have. Mm -hmm. Um, I train clinicians on how to reach our, our fellow service members. 
And the primary thing to do is more than anything else, the military respects skill and expertise. Um, in the military, mission comes first. If you are good at your job, mm -hmm. um, they'll forgive you almost anything. And so as, as long as you're speaking to a veteran, even about something they're struggling with, if they're talking with you and you have expertise mm -hmm. and you stay to your expertise, you don't tr overreach trying to build rapport with them, trying to necessarily relate personally their experience, they're going to take that very well. Mm -hmm. And they will also take very poorly and overreach to try to bond. Like one of the stories that I often hear is a clinician or a friend in an attempt to bond with somebody who is a military member that has experienced trauma and is struggling with post-traumatic stress. They'll say something like, oh my goodness, you know, my daughter, she was in a car accident and she had nightmares for months. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense that after that you might have, you might have some struggles. Wow. So that kind of comparison doesn't help. No. And while neurologically we know that there's going to be a lot of similarities in what the brain does with trauma, it trivializes their experience mm -hmm. in combat. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what do you usually address? Is, uh, is it different in terms of, of a patient? Do, do you address stress management, emotional regulation? What works with this population? Is it at all different? So primarily what I use is I, I like dialectic behavior therapy. And the simplest frame for that is if we all learned everything we needed in kindergarten, we wouldn't need to be in therapy. Mm. And yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, no, <laughs> no one has it. So you and I have some job security. Um, uh -huh. But what I love about dialectic behavior therapy is it basically took all those skills, wrote them up simply and clearly, and then made worksheets. And so more than anything, most military members I work with want something they can do. They're, they're not necessarily interested in just coming in and, and processing and, and sitting back and exploring the, the initial thing has to be some immediate relief to their feeling of not having efficacy with whatever they're struggling with. And to be honest, I don't think that that's entirely unique to veterans. I think most people, by the time they seek help, it's something that they've been struggling with for a while and they really want some relief. Mm -hmm. Additionally, helping them figure out how to make decisions again. Like if it's a recent veteran, um, or even a not recent veteran. I've had veterans come in four years after getting out of the military. And when they left the military, they had a plan that they developed while they were in. They were very successful. They ran that plan all the way to the end of it and then didn't feel fulfilled or happy. And they were just mm -hmm. struggling because all of a sudden there were no more rails. I think that's the, the biggest thing is just the acknowledgement that that is difficult. The acknowledgement that they will never again find work that is going to give them the same purpose and connectivity that the military did and the hope that they can find purpose and connectivity in other areas are the main things that help them. Is it difficult for them to reconnect with family and friends? It depends a lot on the family and friends. Um, I, I think one of the things that we're finding is more and more military members are coming from military families. Um, and those folks uh, certainly have a, a deeper bench on connection, but they also have kind of, um, they carry the struggles of the previous generations sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, I think it can, it, it all depends on the veterans awareness in that they've changed and that the world has moved by while they've been gone. 
mm-hmm. and the family's acceptance that they've changed. I think a lot of times when, and this was certainly my experience, I, when I was in the military for five years, I was overseas for the vast majority of it. And when I would come home on leave, which, you know, essentially is vacation, people would engage with me like I was the same person I was before I served. You know, like we're going to pick right back up where we left off when they last saw me. And that's just not the case. I've had unique experiences, unique challenges, and I've learned new things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you want them to validate that, um, to acknowledge. Some, sometimes the validation, the acknowledgement, sometimes just the openness that while some things are different, the core of me is still the same. Mm-hmm. You know, the values that, that drive me, the personhood I bring to anything I do, um, and just be open to the conversations. Mm-hmm. I think that's the hardest part. Yeah, I, I, I remember one of the interviews that I listened to. Um, you, said some, you said something that really uh, caught my attention. You said when, to a counselor, I mean, when you, I'm sure that's one of the trainings that you do. Let them educate you. What does that mean? So I was in the Air Force, and the Air Force has different acronyms than other military branches, right? Um, For whatever reason, culturally, the military absolutely loves acronyms. If we can take (laughs) two single-syllable words and break it down into two letters, we'll do that. And it doesn't make any (laughs) sense, right? It doesn't Uh speed up our language. So with most of my clients, I don't speak their acronyms. And this is my specialty. This is the population I work with. And more often than not, they speak right past me. You know, we're, we're talking about an experience they had. They start whipping out these acronyms. And it's entirely appropriate to just pause and say, um, so what I'm hearing is this, but I don't understand this acronym. Um, is that important for me to know? Mm-hmm. And also let them educate you in terms of what they're feeling, right? And what their experience is yeah, like. And what, and what they're struggling is. Because we do have all these misconceptions when it comes well, to the military the because it's so service. prevalent. Yeah, they carry into the service. The vast majority of veterans that I see are terrified that they have post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the time they don't. They may have anxiety, they may have depression, they may just be struggling with a divorce or struggling with college, coming back to it at 25 after not doing school for seven years. So the assumptions are all around. And so just being there with them, asking about their experience, being open to them when they can be and giving them their space when they need it. Just like hopefully we do with any of our loved ones. Mm-hmm. You just made a good point. So many of them are afraid that they have PTSD. So mm-hmm. if we have a military person listening to us right now, how can they know? Can you just give us an idea? How do you know if it's depression or how do you know if it's really PTSD and you should really go in and get help? Well, I think if the symptoms are bad enough that you're worried, going in and getting help is what to do, regardless of what the diagnosis may or may not be. If it's depression, that's going to be, you've got that weight, you've got that feeling of helplessness, you are more often than not unable to engage the world around you. Mm -hmm. Post-traumatic stress is going to be more of a fear response, where you're having nightmares, where you find yourself avoiding things that remind you mm-hmm. of the trauma. I think more than anything else, that tends to be the biggest indicator that I, I try to get people to recognize. Um, I, when I was running a program for transitioning veterans onto campus, uh, we had a lot of uh, veterans that rode bikes to campus, some pretty significant distances, all because uh, they were in roadside bombings and now driving was triggering for them. 
So it's if you're avoiding specific things because they relate back to where your mind is struck, where those memories keep coming back to, that's, that might be post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. But again, it's really important not to diagnose oneself based on reading the DSM or taking an online quiz or having a friend say, oh, I know you and I read this article, so I think you might have this. Mm-hmm. If you're struggling, go get help. And to, for full transparency, I'm not a big believer in diagnosis being the end-all be-all and framing out our work. Of I course, think it's yeah. really empowering for some people to know, hey, other people have had this. They've gotten better. I'm going to do what they did. So this diagnosis is comforting because I know I can get better. For others, I've had clients where if they had a diagnosis, they would feel helpless and unable to do anything about it. They're like, oh, well, I guess this is just me now. And that's never the case. Mm-hmm. The other big misconception that I really, I want to just take a minute and get to is 94% of people that struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder recover. That's so important. I was, yes, I was just going to ask you because there is also this idea that once you have PTSD, you're doomed for life. Yeah. And that's also tends to be the frame that we use for almost any mental illness in this country, right? Most of mm-hmm. us, yeah. we, you know, if we're feeling depressed, we go to the doctor, they hand us some pills and we just take them forever. Mm-hmm. If you're on medication and you haven't done any talk therapy and you haven't gone in and worked on what is perhaps making you sad, anxious, whatever you're struggling with, that's unfortunate because almost every mental health struggle that we have can at least be improved by help, if not completely cured. Mm-hmm. That's a great point to make. And it has to do with degree too, when it comes to symptom, because I know today uh, every, everyone knows the diagnosis. We go online and we see the symptoms, it, and it's a matter of degree. For example, a combat veteran, they come back from war, they've had a horrible experience, of course, and they'll have nightmares. But that's normal. It's expected for you to have nightmares. So it has to do with functioning too, right? Is it affectioning, affecting your function and how you relate to others too? Functioning degree and time. Having nightmares for six months after a traumatic event, car accident, what have you, that's normal. Uh, the other thing to be very careful with is um, military and athletes are the two highest populations of traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. And traumatic brain injury often mirrors what a different diagnoses have. So we've also had a lot of veterans and, and athletes that are framed and treated like they have post-traumatic stress when it's later discovered they, with a brain scan that they have a traumatic brain injury. And the treatment is going to be very different if that's the case. Mm-hmm. What about suicide? If they come to you and they say, I want to kill myself. So How do you address that, that? One, believe them. Um, I, I think more often than not, people are scared of that statement and want to put distance from themselves. They want to remind that person how strong they are. In that moment, what they're telling you is, I don't want to be strong right now. Which, like you said, particularly for that, you know, this person had, you know, signed up to be in uniform on some level to be, be our hero, to be the person that takes care of our family. If they say that, believe them, believe that they're struggling. And then call up an advocacy line or the crisis line at the VA. Mm -hmm. Get some help immediately. Don't do that on your own and don't leave them to do it on their own. 
mm-hmm. be there with them through that. Um, what should someone who has maybe a family member uh, and they're listening to us right now, what should they avoid doing? Uh, discounting it, not believing them, um, avoiding the topic. Uh, and I'm sure you've covered this in your other podcast, but if someone's already thinking about suicide, asking them if they are or not, isn't going to all of a sudden make them think about it and commit suicide. If anything, it's going to provide them some relief to have space to talk about what's going on for them. Mm-hmm. So ask them questions, be with them, listen to them, and then advocate for them to get the help that they need that's available. Mm-hmm. What about access to arms? Because that's, this is very prevalent in this population. And, and usually when you limit the access to the method, it helps. So that's a double-edged sword. One of the main reasons why veterans often don't disclose that they're suicidal is they're worried about losing access to their firearms. Uh-huh. So the biggest thing is, particularly if it's a family or friend, I would recommend, one, if they have weapons, um, then ask them about what's going on for them and then offer to hold the weapons for them. That way it doesn't have to go through official channels. It doesn't have to be confiscated by a mental health professional or police officer. You have that for them. Mm-hmm. And they're much more likely to feel safe doing that than they are invol- involving official bureaucracy and losing their uh-huh. Uh-huh. Is that a is that a major fear? Uh, yes. That okay, because I, I I would think so, that maybe they even go to a counselor who is private, so it doesn't go through the system. So that's one of the reasons why they tend to use um, private counselors. Another is we don't, as a community, have a lot of faith in the uh, VA. It's an overburdened system, and it's it's really unfortunate because the vast majority of VA employees are veterans doing their best to help other veterans. I don't want to denigrate those professionals. They're very dedicated. They're working very hard. It's mm-hmm. just a very disorganized and overburdened system. The other thing that often happens is if you're, if you're a veteran, one of the first things they tell you upon getting out is they recommend you go apply for a disability rating. And oftentimes mental health diagnosis can be part of that. And so if you have that as part of your disability rating, which is a percentage rating that then gets you a check every month, and I go to the VA for help and my mental health improves, I could lose money. Mm-hmm. So I'm much more likely to go through a private provider to protect that incoming resource. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine it's, it's not just the money, but the shame associated too. Uh, the money is a large factor. Uh, the is. shame tends to pop up more with the officers than the enlisted. Um, officers aren't generally going to go use the VA because it was their role to mm-hmm. be in charge and be around the vast majority of veterans. Uh-huh. So they're more likely to use private care than the VA. I see. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your for your knowledge, for sharing all of this with us. I hope it helps uh, break down some of the stigma associated with this population. And I would like for you, can you, can you tell our listeners where to find you? Sure. So if you're looking for resources or um, if you're a clinician that just needs some help, uh, you can find me by going to my website at empoweredchange.com ce.com again that's empowered change charlieecho.com in addition to my personal contact there's also a list of resources for military member, members and those who want to support them mm-hmm. from a list of books i recommend to the crisis lines i use 
uh, to local Denver resources. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for your time with us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com.